morning. This is Phil Coover, and this is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. Today, we have a great topic and a great guest. We have Mark Perkowski of Draper and Kramer uh, to talk about money, financing. It's everyone's favorite topic. And we also have my uh, my frequent co-host and partner at Ice Miller, Jay Augustin. Jay, thanks for, thanks for joining me to host. The goose to your maverick, as always, but I'm not dead. We should, we should change that up every time. We should have like a different relevant phrase. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're in the commercial finance group of Draper and Kramer. Um, we appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks for having me. Good morning, guys. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. Well, it, it's great to have this topic. I got to say, Mark, I've been doing this podcast for about, about four years. And whenever I have someone in your industry on to talk about financing and, um, and debt, for projects, it's always one of the more popular episodes. Uh, so, you know, my first one I did, we got to pay homage to the great Bill Barry, also for a Draper sure. and Kramer. Um, everybody knows Bill, and Bill came on the podcast about three, four years ago. And, you know, that was for a long time, that was my most popular episode. Partly because I understand Bill, why. Yeah, partly because Bill knows a lot of people, but also because everyone's interested in this topic. And then two years ago, I had Trisha Connolly, who's with Acton Ziff now on uh, to talk about debt financing. And so it, it's always a relevant topic. It's always something people are interested in. So, um, you know, tell us about uh, your role and, and what you do for Draper and Kramer. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a mortgage banker here at, at, at Draper and Kramer. And uh, of co- right, of course, everybody knows Bill Barry. I uh I won't attempt to fill his shoes. I don't. I don't think that's possible to accomplish. So I'll I'll, I'll set that goal aside. But um, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, Draper and Kramer is a. Uh, I think they're a bit of a household name here in the Chicago area, given they've been around for 128 years old. The company is as of as of this year. Um, you know, and, and Draper and Kramer started as just a general commercial real estate services firm. Um, and, and one of those services was commercial mortgage banking, something that they've been in for uh, all 128 years. The company is now a, a big owner of commercial real estate. So similar to most commercial real estate managers, right? You, you, you do work for a while and um, you do other people's deals and you begin to see how much money they're making off their deals. And you say, oh, wait a minute, I can I can put that deal together myself, too. You know, why, why don't I want to be an owner? So so now the company owns about 8,000 multifamily units, you know, primarily in Chicago, but then some, some additional primary markets across the South and, and out in Denver. Uh, but I personally work specifically in the commercial finance group. Mark, how did you find yourself at Draper and Kramer? What led you there? Oh, that's, uh, that's an interesting question, actually. I have been a commercial mortgage banker in Chicago for about 12 years. So previous to that, I, I'm a, um, I'm a recovering New Yorker. I'm, I'm originally from New York, um, and I, I worked in different facets of commercial real estate. Um, and, and and it's funny, Phil, how you bring up money. You know, I, I was uh, basically working in sales for different areas in commercial real estate, and thought, well, everybody wants money, so why not, why not just get into selling money? That 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 should be pretty easy. Um, it's not as easy as I thought it was. It's it's you know quite interesting, but. Um, so I, I worked for a couple of different commercial mortgage banking firms here in Chicago before I, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned Bill Barry. I just reached out and, and introduced myself. I knew the company. I knew the reputation that they had here in the market. And, 
it was a team that that I wanted to be a part of. So I I asked to join the team, and and Brill bought me aboard. That was that was about four years ago. What were the adjustments? What were the things that uh, coming to Draper and Kramer were the things you kind of internalized right away as uh, as you approached the new gig? You know what I would tell you is. When it comes to Draper and Kramer, I think what most people think about us for here locally are the life company relationships. Uh, so year in and year out, Draper and Kramer will finance, you know, call it three to four billion dollars of debt. Um, and about half of that is placed with with life insurance companies. And when I was coming up at, as a mortgage banker at, at previous firms that I had worked with, I really concentrated and enjoyed um, placing life company business. And, uh, you know, Draper and Kramer, they have 29 correspondents here in the market, which is, is much more than anybody else. So, um, you know, that, that was that was really my impetus for wanting to join the firm. And, and I, I think that's the biggest difference is is their knowledge of the life company market and, and the amount of, of business that we do, you know, with Chicago deals um, for our life companies. So, yeah, let's talk about that. So kind of big picture. Um... For those who don't know kind of the general aspects of what you do is someone has a project, they need to get financing, they need to put they need to get a loan to do a project, either whether it's stabilized asset development, what have you. And then they go to you and they say, Mark, can can you help me find this financing? And it's your relationships, both personal and institutional through Draper and Kramer, that kind of help help guide, help you go out to market and, and know who might be interested in financing uh, the types of debt. Um, is that, is that a fair in a nutshell? I, I think that's a, I think that's a very fair description. You know, basically as a mortgage banker, me or, or any other mortgage banker, it's our job to connect borrowers or investors with the the best capital source available to them for that that given transaction, whatever it may be. It could be a, a permanent first mortgage. It could be a construction loan. It could be a mezzanine loan, um, JV equity, occasionally JV equity, um, but you know certainly a lot of pref equity. Um, and and that's what, what we do. You don't know, there can be a variety of sources, right? You have CMBS lenders, you have banks, you have debt funds, and, and we can get into each one of those. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's our job to know what a specific lender is looking for, um, what they're looking for at a given time, right? Because that, that changes, you know, on a quarterly basis, if, if not a monthly basis. Um, and then how best to target a deal and position a deal for for success with with a given lender source. And I think we'd be interested in kind of hearing, uh, you know, kind of parameters and motivations of the the buckets of lenders that you find yourself working with the most. But if you could share a little bit with us uh, regarding both your personal and Draper and Kramer's institutional relationships with life companies, you know, why why they've been a source of enjoyment for you in your practice and what they what they bring to the market from a, a financing source perspective. Sure, that's that's a great question. You know, I think I'll start off with. If you're an experienced large investor, every everybody knows that life companies are a huge source of capital in the market. Um, but I'm constantly surprised when I come across a, a newer investor, maybe somebody that's younger or, or just starting out and only done a few bank deals, but they don't realize that you know that that life companies provide so many mortgages and and how does that whole thing work, right? So. 
there's all sorts of insurance companies out there. And what happens is you, you, you pay your monthly premium for a, a certain life insurance policy. Um, and God forbid you ever need to put a claim in. They, they need to make sure that they can pay it out. So they have a chief investment officer whose job it is to, to manage. Here's all of our money that comes in on a monthly basis. How do we go out and invest it to make sure that we grow our pool of assets in order to be able to, to, to pay that out? They call it, you know, basically matching their, their assets and their liabilities. Um, and those investment teams will invest in a variety of, of different uh, areas, right? They'll, they'll invest in the stock market. They'll invest in the bond market. Um, they might make equity investments in real estate. And, and one of the things that they do is they make you know, commercial real estate loans directly using, using their balance sheet. Um, but they don't typically have a national reach. So in many ways, you can think of a firm like Draper and Kramer, like a manufacturer's rep. You know, in the manufacturing world, you might you might make a widget and you're really good at making that widget, but you're not necessarily good at knowing exactly who needs to buy your widget or in, in, in this example. Um, and so, you know, let's take uh, Southern Farm Bureau Life Insurance. It would be a good example. They're, they're headquartered in Jackson, Mississippi. Southern Farm Bureau Life Insurance is a, a great lender. Um, and they make loans all over the country, but it's impossible for their team to know where a good deal is in Portland or in San Diego or in Chicago and Jacksonville and, 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 and Connecticut all at the same time. So what they do is they work with mortgage banking firms across the country to basically be their boots on the ground. You know, we, we have a correspondent relationship with them. We work with these guys on, on a regular basis and we're able to show a deal to them and, and, and then explain to them uh, why uh, Pilsen, for example, hey, hey, this this is a great deal. Pilsen is a really up and coming neighborhood. The demographics are are moving in a, in a great trend. This is uh, a neighborhood that you want to be in. And this is why you guys should should consider doing this deal. And that's, you know, that example, that's that's the value that we bring to the table. And in your experience, what are life companies looking for? And this is obviously generalizing, so it changes probably among companies and the folks who are placing the loans or on behalf of those companies. What are life companies looking for that might be different from, you know, other you know lending sources that you work with? Are there are there characteristics of deals or projects that are more or less appealing to the life company? I mean, yes, and that answer changes based on the life company, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> In general, life companies tend to like more conservative deals. So uh, a low leverage multifamily or industrial deal, a life company is going to be all over that deal. You know, they tend to be more conservative. And with that more conservative lending nature comes better pricing. So if you have um, an institutional owner with a low leverage multi-tenant industrial portfolio, the life company is going to be able to beat the rate that any local bank is going to be able to give you. They, they just simply have a lower cost of capital than, than what that bank is able to do. Uh, but that's not always the case, right? Some, sometimes, uh, you know, this, this is an interesting time of the year. A lot of times life companies will go through the year and they make these low leverage loans and then they get to the end of the year and they say, okay, I have uh, 15% of my annual bucket of capital left and I want to fill it out with some higher lever or, you know, some higher spread deals. So maybe I want to look for something with a little higher leverage, a little bit more risk, but I want to make sure that it's the right deal and it's going to be a safe deal for me. So it's our job to help them figure out what what that transaction might be. Is it usually stabilized assets for life insurance companies or do they do construction financing too? 
They do construction financing, fill primarily at stabilized assets. I would say that's the, the, the vast majority of what they do. But there are some life companies that have um, construction programs. Uh, there are life companies that have construction to perm programs. You know, very interesting might be where, hey, we'll give you 65% loan to cost on a, uh, a 15-year deal, a three-year construction and stabilization period followed by a, a a 12 year perm loan, right? That's, that's not something that you could go to uh, a regular Chicago bank and get it at this, at this point in time. And in a rising interest rate environment, that might be very interesting to, to a given developer. Now that sounds great when you, when you hear, Oh my God, this is amazing. I, I get, uh, I get to lock in my rate for 15 years today. You do. The flip side to it is you don't get to cash out your equity for 15 years. So a lot of times, most developers don't love that idea. They, they want to get into a deal and, and be able to cash out as much of their equity as possible before they put it on a stabilized loan. But if that's uh, if that's not your goal and you're willing to hold it with with more equity in the deal, it's a it's a great option. So it's usually permanent debt. It's usually permanent debt. You know, again, more and more of them though are building up bridge programs similar to what you would think of with a debt fund. You know, a non recourse. Um, three year with with extension option debt fund program and, and those are available with with the life companies and you know particularly if it's a deal that you think once it's stabilized do you want life company perm execution on that could make a lot of sense you go to them for the bridge loan and then two three years uh, once it's stabilized you know say it's a uh, an office building that you know in, in, in downtown that needs to be retenanted um, you know, right now it's 65% uh, occupied and you want to wait till it gets to 90% occupied and then flip it into a perm loan. Um, you know, if you, if you know that's going to be your perm outlet, it's just a, a more seamless transaction. You discuss kind of the benefits of, of having, you know, more aggressive or more beneficial pricing in the marketplace when you're interacting with life companies, generally speaking. Once you get that term sheet signed up and you get into the, the document negotiating process, What's been your experience in uh, in negotiating with life companies and their counsel regarding, you know, covenants, reps and warranties, you know, guarantees, those types of things? You know, in the last couple of years, you know, certainly in COVID times as well, you know, we've seen a retrenchment among a lot of lender asset classes in um, what they're requiring in terms of, uh, you know, the carve out guarantees, what's coming coming to play in some of the completion guarantees. Do borrowers find that the negotiation of the definitive agreements with life companies are easier, harder or or kind of vary, uh, you know, relative to other lenders? It's a. Uh... A very detailed question coming from a real estate attorney. That's, uh, that cracks, <laughs> me up. These are the things that I'm concerned uh, about, Mark. I, I I completely understand. You know what I would tell you is every life company has their hot button issues, right? And just as you would be representing your borrower on the deal, uh, they may have hired Phil to represent them on the deal, right? So 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 both both sides have have good representation. What I can tell you is that when I sign a deal up with a life company, me personally. And the way that I look at it is I'm, I always have a very high um, confidence in, in, in its ability to close and people to work through through the issues, right? So first and foremost, most life companies, when you sign up a deal, will use what, what we refer to as a long-form app, right? So, so sometimes you go to a bank, you get a term sheet, that, that term sheet's two pages long, and it says, hey, I'm, I'm going to give you this loan at these terms. And then at the end, it normally says, regardless of what I put on this paper, I promise nothing send me $40,000 and, and let's figure it out. Um, you know, whereas with, with a life company, a lot of times that term sheet might be 15 or 20 pages long. 
So it has all of the terms spelled out with, with, within that loan application. And it's the borrower's opportunity to have their counsel go through and mark up that loan application. You know, as we often say, it, it's, it's your free look at the deal, right? You, 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 haven't, you haven't put a deposit down on lender's counsel yet. You're not necessarily ringing up a bill. I mean, you, you are to have your guy go through it and, and, and give some red lines in it. But, you know, in many instances, it, it gives a borrower the ability to, to highlight what their hot button issues are going to be in the non-recourse carve-outs. Um, maybe it is, you know, something specific with a completion guarantee or, or with the, uh, you know, if you have a specific reserve account and how you want those reserves to, to be released and, and you can negotiate that all, all ahead of time. Um, the, the other thing I, I would say when, when it comes to reserves is, is one of the very big differences between a life company and a CMBS loan is that life company is retaining the servicing on your deal. So, you know, when it comes to understanding your your reserve requirements or the long-term ramifications of your loan, the same person that you negotiate that loan application with and then negotiate the loan documents with and fund the loan is the same person that's standing behind that deal for the next three, five, seven, or 10 years. Um, and that includes Draper Kramer as your mortgage banker, right? Mm-hmm. Where the servicer, we're interfacing with these guys every day. So if, uh, if there is a question or... COVID is a great example, right? Nobody saw COVID happening. Nobody knew that somebody with a single tenant restaurant was going to be going back to their lender and, and with a reasonable request to ask for interest only for, for 12 months on a loan. It was a much easier issue to, to, to tackle and, and a problem to solve when dealing with a balance sheet lender and, and people that had a long-term relationship as opposed to if it was a securitized loan. Yeah, there's there's a couple of great points in that. I mean, when Jay, so the question kind of originally is basically, how do we figure out who's going to be more rigid when we get to the loan documents on some of the ancillary business terms besides just price amount? And a couple of points there is like one is as you bring up it's the LOI stage. A lot of times, you know, the borrower doesn't even send it to counsel until it's after the LOI stage, and the LOI stage is really your time to compare with other lenders, you know, where, where you might be able to get some better ancillary terms on recourse um, and some other matters, because it's, it's that free look, as you point out, you know, it's your time to try to figure out how tough is the lender going to be on some of these other things. And also, I imagine it's deal specific, you know, right now, if you come to the table with a highly stabilized industrial portfolio, that might, you might get some better terms than if you're uh, trying to you know, get a get a retail shopping center funded in in a C plus market or something like that. Uh, think, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. A good a good example for that might be, uh, you know, no warm body carve outs. Right there, there could be a REIT or a fund that says, "Hey, we, we want to put this portfolio together, uh, but we want it to be true non recourse. We want absolutely no no warm body carve outs whatsoever." I think traditionally that used to be a, a fairly hard thing to accomplish, but now. If you do indeed have one of those low leverage portfolios that five, 10, 20 different life companies are chasing, that's the kind of request that you can put in that uh, probably would be accepted in today's market if it, if it was the right pool of collateral. But you're right. They, they, they wouldn't accept that if it was a, a high leverage anchored shopping center with, with some lease roll. Not so much. 
Well, and I love the commitment of, you know, documenting as much as you can, as soon as you can, you know, in the term sheet, in the LOI, you know, there is such a pressure uh, all the time to get deals signed up and get to the definitive agreement stage. But I find that if, if folks are willing to take the week or 10 days or however long it takes to, you know, memorialize those things that are important to them and not punt them to the documents, it saves a lot of pain and a lot of cost down the road to do that. So that being a feature of the the approach to life company financing, it's appealing to me as somebody who's always concerned about what, you know, borrower clients are signing up for, you know, before they've really meaningfully engaged us. I, I completely agree. You know, as most people in this industry earn their living on completed transactions. And as I say to say to my clients all the time, we don't we don't get paid for practice. No, no, nobody makes money practicing on a deal. No one wants to see a deal die, but it, it's always a, a lot more palatable and painless to see somebody have, have a deal die quickly and upfront than than a long drawn out no, right? If if uh, if there's something that we're gonna just have a difference of opinion on and the lender and the borrower are not going to see eye to eye, we, we might as well figure that out up front. It doesn't doesn't help us to to get to the finish line before we determine that. What's kind of interesting to me is when we were talking a month or so ago and, and now is just how much of this is relationship driven. And I used to think, well, borrower has deal. They find they find Mark. Mark just goes out to market and finds whoever can give them the best pricing. But it's not at all like that because there's other considerations like who's going to close and who's going to want to move forward and some of these ancillary business terms we're talking about. And also, you know, these life insurance people, as you kind of brought up 10 minutes ago or so in the conversation is they have to build up a rapport with you and trust that you're bringing them a borrower that will also go through with the deal and is also in a good market. And so if you bring them a couple, couple dogs that, uh, you know, don't end up being good deals, then that's not going to bode well for your long-term relationship with that life insurance company. So it's interesting to me um, how you both sides of the transactions really have to trust your assessment of of the transaction and and who the who the right players are to get the deal done. I, I completely agree. It was I was kind of thinking about this last night. Last night, you know, before. Recording this podcast, I was watching the Green Bay Packers game, and it was the game where they, they a bunch of their receivers were out because of COVID protocols. and And the announcer was talking about how it's hard for Aaron Rodgers to trust his rookie receivers that are out there on the field. And you saw a few plays where he threw the ball exactly where he he wanted it to be, and they just weren't in the right spot. And it's because he he didn't have that trust, right? They're not out there on the field. They're not working with each other on a regular basis. They don't they don't they don't know what's going to happen. Um, and it's kind of similar in this business that when right everybody has a reputation, they, they have a reputation with their client, a life insurance uh, loan officer has a has a reputation with his boss and internally his his investment committee. Um, so if I bring them a deal that might be slightly outside the box, but I say to my relationship, this is the deal that you want to do. I've done several uh, transactions with this borrower before. He's been a great borrower. He's a reputable guy. He's paid all of his bills on time. You know, th- this is this is the one that you want to go to bat for. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis put on the relationship and maybe four or five times before that we've had that conversation and I've delivered on that promise, right? If I, if I deliver on that promise four or five times, um, each time you go about it, it, it becomes easier and easier. So it, it, it is very 
relationship driven. People want to want to know who who they can trust. You know, you speak about relationships. I can't imagine that in the last, you know, 15 months or so, you know, your relationships haven't been, you know, leveraged in a variety of ways to help your your borrower clients and your lender clients, you know, navigate, you know, the uncertainties of COVID. Share a little bit with us what that experience was like for you both at the outset and as, uh, you know, markets kind of reassess where we were, where we coming out, the impact of Delta. Just kind of take us through both kind of practically how you were handling it and then kind of emotionally how your clients were kind of reacting to the ups and downs and the uncertainties of, of navigating their loans uh, in the face of kind of an uncertain economic climate. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was interesting times for everybody. Right. I think. Um everyone in this industry. I, I specifically remember where I was. In fact, I was punishing the, the finishing touches on a hotel package the Sunday before we went into lockdown. And what was that? March of, of, of 2020. Uh, in fact, I came into the office on Monday and hit send specifically to a bunch of life companies. And uh, and by Wednesday, I realized that that deal probably wasn't going to get too much play given, given what was happening. You know, you know, again, I, was an opportunity for everybody in the industry to, I mean, my takeaway is I think everybody in the industry played very well in the sandbox. You know, they, they, they looked at what was in front of them and they said, okay, you know, nobody anticipated this. Um, you know, I, I talk about hotels, right? You can, you can, you can, every underwriter stress tests the deal, but you can't stress test a, a hotel or a retail shopping center or any kind of property at a 0% occupancy. It's, it's never going to work, right? It, it's, that's impossible to stress test. So how do we work through it? Most of our lenders were, were pretty forthcoming with, with a borrower that needed it and, and giving them interest only or, or, you know, whatever kind of relief that they needed. So, you know, I, I might ask you to revisit the question, but, you know, from a, from a, from a COVID standpoint, I, I found, you know, people kind of took a pause. They took a deep breath. They, they looked at what was in front of them and then, and then rolled up their sleeves and decided how, how, how best to, to solve that problem. And, uh, it, in the vast majority of instances, it was, it was solved. We, we, we came up with a, a short-term solution and I, I really can't think of any examples where that loan's not back to making regular payments. And, and for the most part, the, the owner has recovered and, you know, it, you know, for, for retail properties, I think some of them are still kind of collecting some of their back rent that maybe they forgave their tenants on, but it's uh, for the most part, everybody will come out whole in, in the end. Yeah. Did you think that uh, by the nature of kind of how life companies treat their loans, were they, you know, at least at the outside in a better position to navigate those uncertainties, maybe than than other kind of groups of lenders or everyone kind of rolled their sleeves up and, and generally got to the right results as soon as they could. You know, uh, my feeling is that everyone kind of rolled up their sleeves and, and, and got to where they were. Um, I think that there were fairly reasonable underwriting standards going into the COVID lockdown. Um, and again, you, you know, anybody could come up with an example of, of a property got, that got crushed or a situation that was a, you know, turned into a bad situation. But I think that there were fairly reasonable underwriting metrics. Um, and 
and that there was a, a pathway to success of, uh, eventually for that deal. And, and, and you know, we, we can take a couple of examples, right? A, a life company, many times they put a lot of emphasis on a, on a good quality borrower, a good quality sponsor. So in that kind of a deal, maybe it was lower leverage. Um, it was a, you know, a strong sponsor that either had the wherewithal to, to reach into their pocket. And, you know, again, maybe that loan went to interest only. So uh, the the loan payment went down, but there was still a loan payment to be made. And that person had a, had enough money to be able to make that loan payment. Um, on the other side, I, you know, if you think about a, a debt fund or a non-recourse bridge lender, you know, those, those guys paid a lot of attention to the underlying metrics of a property and what it might be worth. And, uh, and, and they knew, okay, you know, there's, there's going to be a hiccup here. I mean, right. Who, whoever thought that there would be a time where, Manhattan multifamily all, all of a sudden became your most troubled asset class overnight. I mean, no, nobody, nobody saw that coming, but you know, they, they, they were positioned to look at it and say, okay, you know, we, we know the value of the underlying asset, or at least the long-term value of this underlying asset. Let's, let's find a way to, to work through it. Thank you for that. Um, it it kind of leads me to just kind of wonder where we are right now. So we're, we're recording this the Friday before Halloween, probably release this sometime in November. December at the latest. So if something crazy happens, uh, I, I like to give those timing disclaimers just in case the world turns so fast on us in 2020 that uh, we can't just, handle we can't handle another world turning fast on us yet. We I think we deserve at least a, a, a three to five year break before that happens again. <laughs> I know, for sure. Tell us, you know, just kind of where we are now. And um, when, when people come to you looking for financing, what what can get financed easily? What's what has difficulty getting financed? You know, you talk about multifamily. Let's just start with that. For for a long time, that was very easy to get financed, and then it was very hard. And now maybe it's easy again. Um, but it's also kind of interesting considering there's the eviction moratoriums that went on for so long. You know, a lot of people thought that that would really hurt multifamily because uh, of the inability to get paying renters into spaces where um, a non-paying renter might be, you know, but I don't, I don't know from where I sit that that actually did hurt multifamily all as much as some people thought it might. So, you know, if you could, if you walk I, us through. I, I agree. I don't, I don't think it hurt it. Now I come at this from a perspective where most multifamily that we look at tends to be, I'd say class B or better. I, I don't have a, a huge amount of exposure to C-class multifamily, which I, I think may have had more of a, uh, you know, a, a larger impact. I mean, I, I know Draper and Kramer, which again, I, as I said at the outset, we own about 8,000 units. And in general, the collection across the portfolio remained pretty strong. They, 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 they did just fine. You know, to, to answer your question about where I see us going next year, I, I would say, you know, steady as she goes or, or, or more of the same of what we've been seeing over over the last six months or since we kind of brushed off the, the dust of the, the COVID pandemic. Um, there's plenty of capital out there for good quality deals. Um, and, and what does that mean? I mean, number one, you know, multifamily and industrial is 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 everybody's darling. I mean, the, the vacancy rates are incredibly low. The rental rates continue to go up. I, I think the Chicago industrial vacancy rate is sub 3%, maybe it's 2% right wow. now. Uh, I, I haven't looked at the most recent vacancy rate for apartments in downtown Chicago, but 
you know, the, the loop did sort of empty out there during the height of the pandemic, but all of those people have come back. The vast majority of these properties are, are back to 95 plus percent occupancy and, and the concessions that were offered during the COVID pandemic have, have lar- largely burnt off. I don't, I don't think there's much of an opportunity to sign a lease in downtown Chicago anymore and get, you know, certainly not three months free rent or, or even two months free rent anymore that, that, that used to be around. So, you know, from a construction standpoint, more plenty of capital available for anything 65% loan to cost, you know, for sure. Um, I think that next gap between 65 and 75% is really filled by having a good relationship, having a good track record, you know, between a, a borrower and a lender and, and being able to put that together. And then there's there's even plenty of capital out there to fill that capital stack up to, I would say, as high as 85% if you want to put mezzanine financing or pref equity financing on top of it, there's there's lots of capital available for that. Um, same thing with with industrial properties. If you're low leverage industrial, you could still get a 10 year rate in the twos, um, a moderate to, you know, quote, high leverage industrial, which about high leverage, I'm saying, you know, up to 75%, um, you'd probably be in the threes, but you'd, you'd still get the, the capital for it. So that's, that's available as is, there's plenty of capital available for spec industrial. If you want to build warehouses that you don't yet have a tenant for, um, there are more than enough lenders willing to uh, to take on that risk with you right now. Now, then that leaves the other side, which is <laughs> office, retail. It, it, you know, there, there's I, I'd say there's kind of five food groups, right? You have multifamily, industrial, office, retail, and, and the fifth is other. It's student housing, hotels, self-storage, data centers. Um you know, and it's interesting as we talk about everybody wants multifamily and industrial. And, and what that means is that we talk about life companies or banks or any of these capital sources, they have to put out the same amount of money. So in 2022, if, if in 2019, they put out $1 billion of financing in 2022, they want to put out that same $1 billion or, or maybe more. Now that $1 billion used to chase four food groups, right? It used to chase multifamily, industrial, retail, and office. And now you've basically removed two of those food groups from it, where, where now all of that capital is primarily chasing multifamily and industrial. Well, what that means is it's just law of supply and demand. You have more supply chasing you know, few, fewer deals. So it, uh, it generally leads to increased leverage or lower spreads for those two property types. When it comes to the others, hospitality, office, and retail, it um, you just need to be a little bit more creative, You know, I, I think particularly CBD office, it's a, that's a tough one right now. How, how do you make a, a certainly, a, you know, a medium term bet on what's going to happen in a, in a given office building, if there's a lot of lease roll in it, um, you know, it could be solved with, with recourse or reserves, um, maybe amortization, but you know, if, if you lose a couple of tenants, that, that could be tough. So I, I think that's probably the one that requires the most creativity right now. Um, retail's getting done. I think we're, we're seeing, the difference between good quality retail and and, and bad retail, um, you know, your your strip center with a lot of uh, Amazon proof, you know, tenants in it. There's still a lot of desire for that, right? Up up until today, Jeff Bezos, he can't cut your hair, he can't sell you a hot cup of coffee, and he can't teach your kid Taekwondo. So if if you have those kind of tenants in it, yeah, that's that's here to stay. And there's there's plenty of capital. Don't provoke that. him. Don't provoke. Yeah, I know. That, is, here, that is true. Giving, he's gonna giving me a haircut next week. He's, he's gonna have uh, uh, a coffee dispenser driving through the office here shortly. But um, 
you know, hotels are an interesting one. I, I see them them coming back. You know, somebody explained to me one time, it's, it's interesting. Hotels, you know, certainly it got hurt really bad during COVID. But hotels also have the shortest path to restabilization. Right? It can take a long time to retent in an office building or a retail space. If, uh, if the McCormick Place opens back up and conferences come back, the, the, the Hilton on South Michigan can go from 0% occupancy to 80% occupancy overnight. So, so, you know, hotels are interesting from the standpoint that uh, they, can, they can stabilize very quickly. And we're seeing that right now in the market. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. You know, retail, um, I've been hearing about the death of retail, you know, since 2008, but it just continues to truck along uh, and continues to make, take hits. But it just, there, there is good retail out there and there's certainly a, a demand for people that want to go to stores. So it, I'm, I'm just always curious about it. I spent a large part of my career focusing mostly on retail, uh, which has evolved over the years. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious what, what happens to shopping malls going forward. But that's probably another lengthy discussion and, and peer into the crystal ball for another day. You know, I, I would tell you on, on, on retail and you know, I, I only have the insights of a lender, not a not a retail owner or a developer, but I, I think we all see it in our daily lives, right? The, the, the class A mall, e- even if it is an enclosed mall, the class A mall is going to survive. Uh, the class B mall in a B location, that's an asset that's probably ripe for, for some kind of, of redevelopment. When it comes to you know open air space, I mean, lifestyle centers are still doing great. Grocery anchored shopping centers get almost as much attention as, as multifamily and industrial. If you have a dominant grocer in, in the location um, and they're producing good sales, that's a that's a very stable piece of, of retail real estate. And then the, the third one, I, again, I would say is, is Amazon proof multi-tenant retail properties, uh, particularly the more tenants that you can group together, the better. For, for example, we're, we're doing a transaction right now. With a life insurance company where it's it's an owner they're they're a retail owner they own kind of mom and pop retail space we're taking four of their shopping centers they're, they're separate loans but they're cross collateralized amongst each other and when we do put them all together we have 40 tenants in there so you know it's uh it, it's pretty stable real estate but with, with 40 tenants i mean i think the largest tenant in, in this portfolio the largest tenant is responsible for six percent of the total income of, of the portfolio and and, uh, and i think the next largest is is one and a half percent so you know whether one center does good or has a good year and, and then another center does better it, they kind of balance each other out and, and the net net is you have a, a a very stable piece of collateral from a from a financing standpoint when we think about uh, retail kind of redevelopment, what is the appetite or the willingness of lenders? And again, this might, it's probably depends on relationships to uh, entertain, uh, you know, financing a, a really uh, unique approach to redevelopment, you know, changing a shopping center to some kind of lifestyle focused, experiential, um, you know, project. Um, have you seen those types of projects being pitched to your lender, to your lender relationships? And if so, given that we haven't necessarily had too much proof of concept in in markets, you know, all over the the U.S. Do you get a sense that, that there's appetite for kind of looking ahead to what might be the future, or is there still some a little bit of prove it before uh, that becomes a, a more appealing um, avenue to place money for lenders? 
I mean, the, the, the toughest sell in, in lending is always to convince a lender that they should be the first one to try something out, right? Uh, that's, uh, th- that's where developers make their money, right? They, they, they really take the risk by, by, by getting the force, first mover advantage and, and pulling it off. No, I, we, we haven't seen a ton of those. Could it be done? Yes, it could be done, but they're going to get accomplished, number one, with lower leverage, and number two, you know, with a developer that really has a track record of success. If somebody that, you know, owns some multifamily buildings and, and they want to go buy a class B mall and, and change it into multifamily as, as their first deal, you know, that's going to be a tough one to get done. If uh, if Sterling Bay comes to the lender with, with, the, with the same transaction, I think that has a much much more likelihood of, of, of success just based on, on the track record of, of the developer behind it. So a very relationship driven deal and, and very much so based on uh, a, a given developer's resume and, and, and their ability to demonstrate they've done in the past. Well, Mark, um, we appreciate you know all of your time today. I want to be respectful of your time. I'll get you out of here on one last question is uh, in Feel free to, to not make a prediction, but if you, do you have any predictions going forward as to what, what we should look to for, for 2022? You know, at this point, I, I think it's it's more of the same. I, I think that the multifamily and the industrial market are on fire and they will continue to be. Um, I don't I don't know where interest rates are going to go. I've been predicting where interest rates are going to go for 12 years. I think I've been wrong for every, every all 12 years. So uh, if, if if I knew where that was going to go, I'd, I'd I'd be trading in the bond market. But, you know, listen, in, in, inflation is here. It's coming. Right. We, we all see it. We see it in our daily lives. The rents are going up and, and that means that the value of these properties are going to go up. So, you know, w- one interesting thing I see, I have, I have a client right now that's that's planning to market a, a portfolio for sale. And their biggest issue internally is they don't know what to do with the money. Great. So, so somebody's going to offer us top dollar for this. Um, and we're going to generate a, a return in the, the tens of millions of dollars, but we have nowhere to go put the money to work. We, we can't go buy something for the same cap rate in which we, we own this portfolio right now. We don't see enough development opportunities with construction costs rising, you know, that, that we can go put that money to work as, as fast as possible in a, in, in a 1031. So what do we do? You know, we, we could sell it and pay the capital gains tax and then take the money. But, we're, you know, and, and it's, it's an interesting conundrum for, for uh, um, an investor to find themselves in that you're somebody's offering you a price that you nearly can't refuse, but they don't know what to do with with the return on it. And in turn, you know, if if you can lock in a low interest rate and hold it and, and earn some cash flow, maybe that maybe that becomes your, um, uh, you know, the, the, the better decision for you. So I, I think there'll be a lot of that kind of decision making going forward next year. Um, and then I think we're going to see some interesting recovery. And in, like I said, some of some of the sectors that, that aren't as hot, the, the hotels are going to come back and, and um, you know, somebody that was able to weather the storm or maybe pick up a, a property at a deal is, is going to be able to make a lot of money at it. And Personally, I think we are going to start to see some stabilization in, in retail real estate. You know, we're, we'll see what uh, which big box tenants you know decide to renew. You know, are they still paring down their locations, or 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 do they continue to uh, you know execute a five year renewal? And, um, and and then there'll be a you know a little bit more view into where that's going to go over the next five to ten years. And I think give give lenders and investors some confidence. 
Well, that sounds wonderful. You know, a little more of the same, little stabilization, a little steady as she goes. That I can, I'm in for that. Sign me up. Me too. Mark, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time, your and your expertise. Um, thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great day. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances. 